and welcome to the Filling the Pill podcast. My name is Kate Barry. I'm a teacher of English and French in a secondary school in County Cork in Ireland. And the reason that you're hearing my voice right now instead of the more familiar Greg Ashman's is that this is a very special episode of the podcast where Greg himself is being interviewed because he's very exciting new book coming out and the, the power of direct instruction and explicit teaching. So you're very welcome to your own podcast, Greg. Thank you, Kate. We'll start with, I want to ask you a bit, so you're, you're an author, you're a teacher, and to talk about teaching, first of all, and what was your kind of tra- career trajectory that took you into teaching? Um, well, I think it's similar to many teachers. I, I don't think I planned to become a teacher. I, I knew I wanted to go to university and I wanted to study science. Um, and then in my third year at university, um, some, someone stood up in our physics lecture and said, um, we're going to go to Uganda and we're going to teach. And we're going to teach in the local community and we're going to do some work there. And it's really useful, uh, valuable thing to do because at the time, a lot of uh, the teachers um, in that area uh, had, well, there weren't many because quite a few had been affected by the AIDS pandemic. And uh, so I thought, well, I, f- I fancy doing that. Um, I'd also I'd applied for a teacher education course, really as a sort of back backup plan. I, I thought I, I didn't think I'd end up being um, a, a teacher, but I thought, well, look, I'll never be unemployed. I'll always be able to get um, work as a teacher somewhere as a mm-hmm. physics teacher. So I went to um, so I went on this trip to Uganda, um, and I started teaching and absolutely loved it. I realised that. Um, we weren't really doing much good. Uh, and this was more of a, the people that took us, funnily enough, were a, like an evangelical Christian group. And they admitted about two thirds of the way through this um, trip, that their main goal was not to do good in Uganda, but to convert us to their branch of evangelical Christianity, the people that they brought along. Um, um, and that didn't quite work out for them. But it was it was really interesting. We had lots of sort of philosophical debates about um, uh, this and that, nature of life and all that sort of stuff. But the thing that really stuck with me is um, that I love the teaching. So um, I just uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it was very basic. There was, there was no equipment. I'm teaching physics with no equipment. So I, I just had to be me and the blackboard. And uh, so when I actually turned up at my PhD, uh, PhD, PGCE course um, a few months later um, it was actually the um, we were yeah I, wouldn't, I won't tell that story that's for another day but when I turned up at my PGCE course a few months later uh, I was now really passionate about becoming a teacher whereas previously it had been a backup plan so I did that um, I worked in um, London um, I worked in, go- in government schools in London um, so I worked in mainly West London, ended up a deputy head of a school in West London. And in this time, I'd met my wife and we got married and we had two little girls and we decided, because uh, she was from Ballarat in Australia, and we'd re- just realised we could give them a better life here than we'd imagined. Um, uh, we'd be able to give them in London, so we moved here. And then I got into the school that I'm in now, and they stressed the importance of educational research. And that sparked something in me which I hadn't really 
uh, come across before in education, which can you believe that? Like I was a deputy head of mm -hmm. high school. Yeah, I hadn't really, apart from a few units called pedagogy and practice issued by um, the British government department, I hadn't really come across much education research. I went inside the black box by uh, Black and William, which I think most people at the time read at some point. Mm -hmm. um, so um, yeah, and I got really interested in research. And so here I am now, uh, 10 years later, um, head of research and head of maths and thoroughly enjoying what I'm doing and still teaching. And yeah, so that, that's, sorry, that's a bit long-winded, but that's kind of no, where, why I am where I am. And, and would that be unusual in your school in Australia that when, even before you arrived there, that they were interested in research? It's or highly unusual. It's highly unusual. My school is highly unusual. Like um, we're a independent school and most independent schools in Australia, from what I can figure, I mean, I haven't worked in them all, uh, but most of them, or any of them actually, I've only worked in this one, but um, they're into, you know, project-based learning and um, mindfulness and um, looking for those kind of, uh, well, I wouldn't say gimmicks, but looking for those unique selling points that they can um, put out there to their, uh, to attract people to, to, to join their school. Whereas um, we, my place is very different. There's no one thing we can point to and say, oh, that this is the uh, special um, spice mix that does what it does. We just do lots of things, um, lots of little details, and we work on those. And uh, I think we do them pretty well. And we get very good results. We um, top the state in the VCE um, results last year. Um, and we do pretty well on NAPLAN, which is our uh, state assessment. Obviously, we're an independent school, and that affects things, yes. you know. Um, but, you know, if you compare us with, against, sorry, I think my, let me switch my email off so it doesn't do that if you compare us against other independent schools we still look good you know even some mm -hmm. selective independent schools we uh, outperform so um well we yeah we, we topped the state last year as i said so uh, it, but it's a lot of little details so we are a very to answer your question a very roundabout sort of way uh, we're, we're very unusual we're also we're not we're not in melbourne and most of the top independent schools well all of them uh, really are in Centre of Melbourne, whereas we're in Ballarat and we take a lot of borders from Western districts, so mm. farmers, kids. Um, so we've got a very, it's quite a, a country kind of atmosphere um, here as well. So it's, it's quite an unusual school, but it's one that I love very much. Yeah, yeah, I heard to say I, I teach in a rural school as well myself. And yeah, there's a lot to be said for it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And you, most people would know you from the podcast here and also from your blog of the same name, Filling the Pale. And when you started out in blogging, you used a pseudonym first. Am I right? Yes. Um, so the blog was called Webs of Substance, which is a terrible name for blog. I don't recommend. It was based on a, um, it was based on a quote from Francis Bacon. Um, the the uh, philosophers are like spiders who spin webs out of their own substance. And, and my, my point really, I was making a point about education research where um, you get these kind of self-citation bubbles where there was no actual experiment at the start of it. It's just someone thinks this and then someone thinks this but refers to the first thing and then someone thinks something else and refers to the first two things. And, and all of a sudden this thing is called research and uh, we're supposed to pay attention to it. Um, and so I, I liken that. So it's Francis Bacon is the obviously the Elizabethan guy who uh, is associated with well one of the people associated with creating the scientific method and and that was one of his quotes so I called this blog 
Webs of Substance, which, as I say, terrible, terrible name because it sounds really pretentious and I had a lot of people mock me for that. Um, but then on, on Twitter, I called my little pseudonym for promoting that Harry Webb, um, which also, obviously Webs of Substance, which also happens to be the real name of the singer Cliff Richard, would you believe? Um, oh, yeah, I didn't which, know that thing. You learn not, something new every day. Yeah. Um, so, but then... Um, I did that because I wanted it to be like a, a sandbox where I could make mistakes and um, try out ideas, say things that even if I didn't really think them, just see what they were like, see what people thought about them. But um, I didn't really do that. I, I just said what I thought and I said the same sort of things that I say at school. So the, the need to be a pseudonym the only the the only the the thing that I would recommend anyone that starts out in blogging seriously consider it though, because you do have these hostile people who dislike mm -hmm. what you have to say, and if they know who you actually are, they will contact your school. I've had a lecturer um, in, um, uh, in in Australia, um, Australian lecturer who I disagreed with on Twitter, started emailing my school about it. Well, people can't do that, you see, if you blog mm -hmm. under a pseudonym. But the original idea that they needed to be like that, it didn't. And then I went to a conference and someone figured out who I was and they started going on about it on Twitter. And I thought, oh, stuff this. And I decided to just revert to my um, actual name. So everything was transparent and above board and it didn't look like I had anything to hide. But yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing. And it, it is a nasty place, Twitter. And people like I've had, I've also had someone complain to my university um, about me because they thought they could put pressure on me that way because they didn't like what I said again um, and of course the university well not of course these days you, you I don't think you could take it as a given but my university very fine university University of New South Wales uh, basically just they had to investigate it and they had to put resource into investigating it but they threw it out because they said I was expressing opinions on education and I have a right to do so so um but yeah, yeah, it's embarrassing. Like when you have to talk to these people and, and you find out that something you've blogged about has caused these people to have to run an investigation or mm. it's just embarrassing. It's, you, you, just, you want to avoid it. So that's, that's why I think that people, if they're just starting out in blogging, they probably should consider uh, not doing so under their own name unless they're fairly certain that they've got the support of the people around them. And what do you think might motivate the kind of zeal that would cause somebody to read something on Twitter. Like I know I read things on Twitter every day that I profoundly disagree with. And it never occurred to me to contact somebody's employer. And what, what do you think it is that motivates that, that kind of thinking that it, people feel incumbent on them, that it's almost like their duty to and contact people's employers or people's third level institutions? Well, I don't really know because like it would never occur to me to do that. Uh, I, I've... Uh, I've been defamed like there's a, a, a comment so someone posted on Twitter that said that I said something that I hadn't said and if I'd said it it would reflect very badly on me and I could um, go down the route of sort of defamation but in the end I, did, I thought well why would I do that and I just blogged about it mm. um, and that's my way of dealing with it so it would never occur to me to do that. I think though where it comes from is people who think that they should be able to tell me what to do get very frustrated. So people who think they're my superiors. So usually it's people who are academics or retired academics or people who think that they're, um, you know, a rung above me and they feel that what I've had to say 
um, is an affront to them or I haven't properly uh, deferred to their authority, um, I think then they think, well, we need to put this guy back in his place. And so they look for other authorities around the place who can do that. And that's the only thing I can think of, but I don't really know because it is, as it's a, an alien mindset to you, it's, it's a very alien mindset to me. It's not something I would ever do. And I also very strongly believe, and I know nowadays it's almost considered um, an admission of being on the far right or something, but I, I believe in free speech. So I, I think you should only curtail speech uh, in the most extreme circumstances, generally, uh, even bordering on the defamation, like my own policy, as I've said, I, I didn't pursue it, because generally speaking, I think um, if people do say things that are terrible, it, it reflects badly on them, and, it, and then other people can form a judgment about them, whereas if you prevent them from saying terrible things, then we don't know, we don't know who these people really are, so um, that's a value of mine as well, that um, so I, I hold very strongly too. So, but of course, that means that 2020 and cancel culture and all that sort of stuff is completely baffling to me. I, don't, I have no idea what all that's about. It is to many people, I think. <laughs> and it's not about, you spoke there about academics and I think education is a bit unusual in that there is um, a, a gap. Now, we know you were doing research and you're pursuing a PhD and do you think there's, Education is unusual in that there's a gap between people who are practitioners and then academics, whereas in maybe in other fields that people who are working as academics are also in some respects also practitioners. And I know academics in education teach in that they often teach postgraduates who are training to be teachers, but they're unlikely to actually teach in a school. I think I think that is a big issue. Um, I think. Um, it is very different to say medicine where uh, like you get panels at conferences where everyone's talking about education and there's not a teacher on the panel. I think partly I, I understand, I haven't really looked into this, but um, I've, uh, I've read articles where people who, who would claim that um, this is because teaching started out as quite a feminized profession. And obviously because it was uh, women who were doing the work, um, they couldn't possibly know what they're doing, so it needed men in universities to tell them what to do sort of thing. Um, and I don't know how much that's true, but it's certainly the case that uh, we're quite patronised. So if you see a teacher uh, on the news, uh, they'll either have been, um, they'll either be talking about an inspirational student, and they'll talk, or they'll be talking about um, how much uh, pressure they're under or something, or they'll be uh, being given some award for doing some marvelous and inspirational thing, which is great. Uh, and, and I don't want those stories to go away, but, but it, it kind of, it, it's a, you don't see us talking seriously about the business of education very much. That's left to our betters in the colleges of education. In Australia, you can actually teach trainee teachers having never qualified as a teacher yourself. So you can do an education degree, you can study education at a higher level, you can never have had teacher accreditation, and you can teach teachers. Uh, and that's a real problem, because um, you, there's not that interlinking uh, that I think you're alluding to in, mm. say, something yeah. like medicine. And so, uh, and, uh, and add to that the very ideological nature of a lot of uh, education faculties, um, you know, they're interested in uh, critical theory and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and you've got a problem because 
the, the practicalities that real teachers have to deal with don't necessarily get factored in. So um, academics in um, uh, teacher colleges can come up with an idea that they think is absolutely marvellous um, and tell everyone, all the training teachers that they should do this, but they don't have to actually make it work themselves. Um, and so they're never testing their ideas against reality in the same way. And even those who have been teachers in the past seem, it seems like they forget that those practicalities surprisingly quickly and kind of go, you just join the university ecosystem and join, because I think part of the, one, one theory I think is that's got some credence is um, we've had a massive expansion of higher education and a lot of that expansion is in things like education degrees. And there's only so many uh, people that could actually run experiments. So you, that hard edge type research, which is a, and I do believe there is a role for other types of research as well. I'm not saying that there isn't, but that that's limited in its scope. So a lot of the people doing doctorates in education uh, are doing it in this more, um, you know, uh, spinning webs out of their own substance kind of thing, referencing Foucault and referencing uh, Bordeaux. Bordeaux, that's a region of France, but you know what I mean. Bourdieu. French, yeah, Bourdieu. French philosophers and, and sort of yeah. confecting all this stuff out of other stuff that other people have confected. And, and that's the, like the whole industry. And that's your road, road, road to advancement. And even when people do actually do empirical research, they'll do things like they'll interview people um, and there'd be no control group. So they'll just like interview uh, a whole load of kids say that have been excluded from school. And the kids will tell them why they've been excluded from school. And they'll say, oh, these kids have been excluded from school for, for really trivial things. And then they'll write that up and that's their research. But they haven't tested that against like what the schools would have said about those incidents mm -hmm. or, or a control group of students who had not been excluded or anything like that. It's, it's quite... Um, a loose area um, and so you get a lot of people working in that those sorts of uh, fields mm. and that's the route to advancement and it just takes you further and further away from you know practically making something work in the classroom getting mm. some kid to understand where to put apostrophes like really mundane stuff that mm -hmm. we have to do you know that, that every yeah. day that most yeah, of the everything. time yeah yeah and, and school is really complicated and I feel sometimes when you do research, you, you, you tend to see everything through the lens of that particular, um, and you're encouraged to see things through the lens mm -hmm. of that particular, even just the, the topic that you're researching or that, and that then it's easy to forget that there's this whole ecosystem of, of school and, and the, of things going on in school that, that are separate to this and that are only maybe marginally connected in some ways. Absolutely. And Inspiration and and I know you invite the as I touched briefly on the on the quotation that you use for for the podcast and for the blog just filling the pail yeah and yeah. and you you use this in a non pejorative sense even though normally I think anybody who's ever done any kind of teaching in service or mm -hmm. training has seen the slide with the quote from W B Yeats was it um, well. No, um, it, it's an it's an interesting. I, I you're right. Like day one, lecture one of my teacher education, there was some guy whose name has long been forgotten by me, but some lecturer at the Institute of Education in London, and he was telling us that um, uh, learning is not the uh, the. Sorry, no, no, it wasn't the WB Bates version. It was we're not here to fill empty vessels. 
Um, and uh, we're here to light fires, sort of. That was the quote. And it stuck with me because one of the features of my teaching practice is that um, I thought that the research and the evidence suggested that we should teach in what I've come to know as a constructivist way. So constructivism obviously mean lots of different things and lots of people argue that there isn't actually such thing as a constructivist teaching style because if it's tr if it's true it's a theory of learning and then no matter how we teach um you would learn through constructivism but anyway putting that aside there's definitely people out there who would subscribe to this constructivist model of teaching and this is kids figuring things out for themselves i i started out as a science teacher i now teach uh, a lot of maths but you know, science should be, kids should do experiments. They should figure things out by doing experiments. You shouldn't tell them about um, the effect of surface area on the rate of reaction. Definitely shouldn't tell them about it. They should do experiments with marble chips. And then you should ask these probing questions and gradually sort of lead them towards um, <clears throat> an understanding that, um, and I thought that, that this was backed by science because essentially this is what we were told. And it was all epitomized for me in that quote. Um, we're not, you know, it's, it's not about filling up empty vessels. It's about lighting fires. And when I started to question this, so um, I couldn't get this to work. So I couldn't get this constructivist teaching model to work, uh, really. And I would resort to uh, a form of explicit teaching, which I now realize is not the best form of explicit teaching. But no one had told me about the best form of explicit teaching. And I couldn't get this constructivist teaching to work. So I'd try doing explicit teaching. And I found that work better, but I felt guilty about it. It was like a, a, a you know, something shameful almost to sort of stand at the front of the class and, and teach kids. And you certainly wouldn't do it if someone was observing you teach, you know. Um, and then I started to read the research. So I landed in Ballarat and at this school that's interested in research and there's lots of books and I started to read them. And although I disagree now with Hattie's approach to doing his meta-meta-analyses, um, it was one of the first books I picked up and I started reading about direct instruction. And there was a, a reference in there to Kirshner Sweller Clark's 2006 paper, Why Minimal Guidance During Instruction Doesn't Work. And I read that. I thought, gosh, the science doesn't support this constructivist teaching and it supports an explicit form of teaching. And um, gosh, that's, that's really surprising. And so that I started out on that journey, but I still had in the back of my mind this quote so I thought, I'm going to look into this quote. And it turns out it comes from Plutarch. Um, and he's talking about, uh, he's writing a letter to some young man called Nicander. Uh, I think that's how you say it, Nicander. Um, and he's telling him how, how Nicander should respond to going to lectures. So obviously in Plutarch's time, look, going to watch lectures was like a thing. It was something that you did. Um, and he said, you know, basically, when you go and watch a lecture, um, you don't just sort of uh, bask in the erudite words of the lecturer. See if you can take something away with you from the lecture. Um, so, you know, uh, and that's the, that's the context in which that quote sits. And Nicander also talks about, sorry, Nicander doesn't. Plutarch also talks about how um, uh, a good teacher um, is like a horse trainer and uh, and uh, he, he, get, he produces students with a good mouth for the bit. In other words, that they don't talk much and they listen a lot. So the idea that Plutarch was in, would be, have been in favour of uh, constructive teaching is bizarre. Um, and so 
I've, I thought I've flipped this around and I'll make this the title of my blog. But the other the layer on to that, the fact that everyone thinks that it's WB Yates that said this, and he probably didn't because it seems that, according to Quote Investigator, there was a book of quotes printed at some point in the 19th century or whatever, and there was a quote from WB Yates, and underneath there was a quote from Plutarch, or it was the other way around. And they were juxtaposed like this. And people made the mistake, they instead of looking above for Plutarch, they looked below and saw WB Yates. And from that error, everyone now says that uh, WB Yates said, learning mm. is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. And you see it quoted in serious um, books about education. So I thought that was all quite funny. Um, and because explicit teaching is the filling of the pail bit, that's why mm. I decided to call the blog Filling the Pale, and I've kind of run with it since then. And I think it's a much better name than uh, Webs of Substance or whatever that was. Well, that, that was fine. But Filling the Pale is, is great. It's a great name. And we hear that, that quote, and it's always attributed to Yeats here in Ireland yeah. as being the yeah. national poet and constantly quoted. And when I hear previous ministers of education, even quite recently, quoting it at press conferences on and why their reforms are so wonderful because they're inspired by Yeats. And your book, <laughs> you, you, so you works about the power of explicit teaching and direct instruction. And could you even talk us through the title a little bit um, that the those terms, even explicit teaching and direct instruction, now I'm sure anybody who's a regular listener to your blog will be quite familiar with them. We're just gonna talk us through um, is there a distinction between those two things or are they more or less the same? Um, okay, so yeah, this is this gets a bit complicated. I hate uh, discussing definitions because I, I find that it's often a way that people avoid uh, discussing the, the meat of an issue. Um, but there is a problem here. So explicit teaching is a whole system of teaching um, where uh, you... Uh, don't expect kids to figure anything out for themselves. You fully explain concepts. Uh, you probably get them to practice them. It's highly interactive and you gradually release control. So the way we would do it in our maths teaching at my place is you'd explain something, you'd pretty much immediately get the students to do something on their mini whiteboards, hold it up. And so, and, but you'd gradually release control. So the end point is them sitting there independently solving problems on their own, but it's a gradual release from the teacher to the students. Um, now, that model, uh, probably best described by Barak Rosenshine in Principles of Instruction, that model arose initially out of the process product research of the 1960s, uh, mainly 1960s. I think it, it's gone on in the 50s and 70s and since, but there was a big push of this research in the 60s. And what people used to do is they would um, go into classrooms, uh, they'd observe the lessons according to some sort of coding system that they would come up with in advance, like how many times does a teacher do this, how many times do you, and they'd mark them off. So it wasn't just a, a loose lesson observation. And then they'd try and uh, find correlations between teacher behaviours and student learning gains. So they'd look at, you know, where, how much progress a student made since the first point in time to the second point in time, and watch what the teacher did. Now, this is all correlational. So you can't be certain. So for instance, um, Oh, a classic example uh, might be, say, writing learning objectives on the board. Um, now, I'm not quite sure how heavily this featured in the process project research, but let's use it as a hypothetical example. Mm -hmm. Writing learning um, objectives on the board. So a teacher might do that, and it might, we might find that teachers who do that tend to have higher learning gains. 
but it might be that then when we tell other teachers to do that, they don't get the learning gains. And it could be that teachers say who are organized or th who think it's important to communicate to the kids what they're trying to do are the ones that tend to write the learning objectives on the board. And it's the organization or the want to communicate, which is the thing that's having the effect, not just the writing of the learning objectives on the board. So when you get other people to just write the learning objectives on the board, you don't get the same effect. So it's correlational. You can't know exactly uh, what's causing the gains, but it is highly suggestive. And then that body of research was followed up by people doing like what I've just said. They tried to teach people to do those things. And, they, and then that sort of validated that some of these things are effective. And then at the micro scale, you've got things happening in the 80s. You've got little uh, randomized control trials of the sort that I do for my PhD research in cognitive load theory. So the classic is, you know, comparing learning from uh, worked examples um, to learning from solving the same kind of problems uh, and the work examples are better. And so again, that implies that, you know, explicitly teaching the steps is superior. Mm -hmm. You've got research in um, things like teaching reading comprehension strategies. So explicit teaching comes up from that whole body of research triangulated from different sources, very different types of research, some correlational, some experimental, very different areas, um, a big bias towards early literacy and numeracy because that's what tends to get research most but still um, rep represented in lots of different areas then direct instruction is all is an is a term that people also use for that so the thing i'm calling explicit teaching there people often call that direct instruction but direct instruction has another meaning and so this is why it gets a bit tricky um and the explicit teaching I've been talking about, the convention is to call that direct instruction with a lowercase d and a lowercase i. And the other kind of direct instruction, the convention is to call that direct instruction with an uppercase d and an uppercase i. And that's a very specific set of programs developed by um, Zig Engelman, Wesley Becker, um, Dog Carnine, uh, centered around um, University of Oregon in the US. And it uses a specific set, uh, approach. Um, so it's not just we'll explicitly teach things uh, and fully explain things before we expect kids to do anything with it. There's a, there's a set of approaches for how you do that. Um, so the use of non-examples, for instance, features a lot. Mm. And they've laid this all out in a book called Theory of Instruction. And then a whole load of programs have been devised based on these, uh, the, this approach. Um, and uh, people might be familiar with things like expressive writing, uh, corrective reading, um, those sorts of programs, all based on this approach. And uh, the key thing that everyone always remembers is that the lessons are scripted. So the teacher actually follows a script and there's a sort of call and response script, um, which I don't think was ever uh, Engelman's intention when he set out, but he just found that teachers wandered off piste all over the place mm. and didn't do the things that he thought they'd agreed to do. When I did it, actually, just as an aside, when I did my first PhD experiment, which was a bit of a failure, I um, gave the teachers something to read out. So I had two classes um, and they were like uh, two different teachers, but I thought this will be fine because they're all interacting with this computer-based program. So it, the order changed. So my research was on um, the order of problem solving and explicit teaching because I was testing predictions of something called, uh, of cognitive load theory against something called productive failure. So I had these two set up. And the first teacher, I gave them the script to read out, basically to say what the kids had to do. 
he was still talking when the um, other class had finished the first of the two conditions. Oh, and he, he was going, no, he was going on about how they didn't have to worry about this, that this was just an experiment. And he started talking about the nature of science experiments and, uh, and, and what we were trying to do here and what we're trying to find out. And he's doing all this, and it was none of it was on the thing that I told him to, to read out. So I can kind of sympathize with Engelman thinking, gosh, these teachers, they, they won't do, it's, they, won't, they won't do the simplest things that we've agreed in advance. So I can see why he came up with the script. Yeah. But people think this is a terrible thing. Oh, you're taking away teachers' professionalism and autonomy and all this sort of stuff because you're providing them with a script. But it's the thing that people tend to realise, not realise, remember about direct instruction. Yeah. Big D, big I. Yeah, yeah. And it is. And is it explicit teaching that, do you think it's too often confused with just lecturing, like with the teacher just standing at the top of the room, just, just working through the examples themselves or just explaining, just explaining things ad infinitum, which you think, and that the constructivist kind of approach is seen as more you often hear it described as student-centered, but in the book you say that really all teaching is student-centered. Yes, so you're absolutely right. Um, Rosenstein has another paper, not as famous as his Principles of Instruction, and it's called Five Meanings of Direct Instruction. And he says one of the, one of the meanings of direct instruction is um, when people use it pejoratively to mean very poor forms of uh, teaching, like such as just lecturing for hours on end. Uh, and you, and it's quite pervasive. So people often, they, they, so explicit teaching, whole system, um, highly interactive. That's what came out of the research anyway. So it's explicit because you're telling kids exactly what you want them to do, but you're constantly checking in on them. So it's very, very important that you do that. Um, but people find it convenient to, uh, to, to um, confuse straight lecturing, uninteractive lecturing with explicit teaching. Um, you know, I've often had when people uh, try to poke holes in my arguments about explicit teaching, they'll say, I'll, I'll refer to some evidence. When you look at the evidence, you'll see something like a study from a university where they've compared lecturing with lectures where every 10 slides or so, there's a multiple choice question and the students have to press the clicker to decide which it is. And they, they find that the ones with the clickers is more effective. And they conclude that active learning is more effective than um, direct instruction. And then, of course, active learning all of a sudden becomes identified with this constructivist uh, figuring stuff out for yourselves mm -hmm. approach. So we've kind of slid very quickly from one kind of thing, lectures versus interactive lectures, to oh, this is evidence for choose your own adventure type um, learning. Yeah. Um, and it's not, um, because no, there's not actually no one really who's in favor of lecturing. It's a necessity in some higher education institutions because they have one lecturer and you know 200 students in, taking the class. So it's kind of a necessity in those circumstances. Um, but I don't think anyone would propose that just standing at the front and talking and talking and hoping the kids are taking down notes that are in some way effective it is the best model. But if people want to prove that constructivist teaching is more effective than direct instruction, what they do is they they label they 
they could create a lecture condition. Or I've even seen one where kids work from worksheets and they'll call that their direct instruction condition. And then they'll compare it to whatever it is that they want to prove is better. And of course, you can then generate the research evidence and you can start the argument up. So when I read a, a paper on this sort of stuff, I always go straight to the method section and look what exactly what they've compared with exactly what. Um, and usually you find that there's a, there's a little bit of an issue there. Mm -hmm. and do you think that teachers, like in general, <coughs> that you know, we, we go to in service and we're told things and that teachers don't have necessarily the research literacy themselves to be able to to look up things and, and look like the methods that even if we do look things up we, we might just look at the abstract or maybe the conclusion and that we don't have necessarily the knowledge to kind of figure things out for ourselves a bit. I, th I think so I think that's a problem and I think we could do some more research literacy so just going back to my previous point um, I, I, I don't think I, like I think teachers um, probably also do a bit too much uh, of the straight lecturing um, and it's not maybe certainly when I was doing explicit teaching but not of a great form of explicit teaching um, I was I probably wasn't testing the kids um, knowledge often enough so I'd get them to do things and I'd interact with them and I'd ask mm -hmm. one kid a question but there wasn't enough of it because you need this constant flow of uh, evidence back to you, particularly telling you that kids haven't learned something because uh, we like to convince ourselves. We're all desperate to convince ourselves that the kids have learned the thing. And so we need this supply of evidence that they haven't learned the thing. And that's what the highly effective mm. forms are. Um, so, uh, but in terms of research literacy, it is a problem. And I don't really know what you do about it because there's been a number of um, efforts to make research more, um, accessible to teachers and um, I suppose organically blogging has grown up as a as a way of doing that but you've got things like the Education Endowment Foundation in the UK which provides these summaries but I don't I don't think that they're right either yet so um, they rely on this meta meta analysis process which I don't really think is legitimate uh, because you end up trying to take very different experiments, doing very different things, again, testing event against very different control conditions and in different ways. And then you try and mush them all into this one effect size, which the EEF use months of additional progress. But something like, you know, metacognition and self-regulation, like I, I wrote about that on my, my blog. I, I actually wrote it as an article for Impact, the magazine the, of the Chartered college of something or other in the uk teaching, teaching. um and uh they would they, they wouldn't print it because uh it was too controversial or something i don't know um but um so i put it on my blog but i looked at that and and the thing like you've got some of the outcome measures are literacy some are um like different like critical thinking skill and, and some of the comparison conditions, and some of these things are randomized control trials. And actually, some of those don't even show a positive effect for whatever the metacognition thing is. And then actually the thing that shows the biggest effect looks for all um, the world like a program to explicitly teach kids how to write. And then you mush all that together and you say, oh, well, metacognition and self-regulation, that's got an effect size of seven additional months. Well, it's... 
it's not really right. It's not really true. I think what the what would the the profession would benefit from a lot more would be systematic uh, narrative studies. So systematic in that it can't be up to the reviewer in advance to just decide which evidence they want to include. They have to have a criteria. They have to say, look, any papers that are randomized controlled trials, and I'm going to search for these keywords on Eric and these keywords on Google Scholar, and all those papers that meet these selection criteria, I'm going to include. But then instead of doing what they do with meta-analysis, which is then try and mush them all together to create one effect size, just write about all the papers and, and summarize what they find and give an overall picture of the field um, and, and uh, avoid very large categories of things like metacognition mm. and self-regulation and focus more on, you know, more prosaic categories like writing mm. programs. What does the evidence say about elementary school writing programs? What does the evidence say about elementary school numeracy programs? What does it say about um, breakfast clubs? Or and, and just write these narrative reviews. Now, I don't have the wherewithal to do that, so I'll just carry on blogging. But if some um, benefactor would set up some kind of... Um, institution that could produce these these narrative reviews i think that would be very beneficial but you're right at the moment teachers well they're, they're kind of a bit stuck and, and most of them don't even have access to the full papers uh, anyway they can only read the abstract so you can't look at the methods and you can't come to a view so it is a bit of a tricky situation in fairness in in ireland we do through through the teaching council and is one of the good things that they do, do is that teachers have free access to journals to um, fairly spread everything in the field of education. And if you, if you have good. the time, once you're registered with the Teaching Council, you can just log on to their website and, and to that portal, you know, get access to it. It is good. And the, the do you think when you get down to the, and at the nitty gritty of teaching that everything is kind of more, everything on the ground is, is more complicated than that there is no key to all mythologies that's going to unlock everything and and that the that we need more kind of subject specific methods like you mentioned and uh, the rating revolution by not natalie wexler but yeah uh, judith hopman and natalie wexler oh. judith hopman actually came up with the concepts and nat wexler helped i think put it together in um, in, in the in the form that could be disseminated outside uh, Judith's school, um, I think um, it's called the Hopman method. Before that, I think, but um, yeah, I think um, subject specific. But even more than that, what what we spend most of our time on in, in my department is we teach a, a unit and we teach it using the same materials. So we've controlled a lot of the variables, the things that can be different between the classes. Now you might think, well, that's why would you want to do that? Um, well, because if you control a lot of the variables like that, then when a difference does arise, you have more of a chance of identifying what made that difference. So we have these meetings and we'll look at a set of data uh, and we'll look at say this four maths classes um, and they're all, uh, say if it's, if it's senior school, then they're all options. So all the classes, classes notionally have got a similar uh, range of uh, levels of advancement of the kids in the class. But in our other years, we'll have um, uh, grouping for instruction, ability grouping. So you have a more advanced class, less advanced class. 
And what we can do is we look at, we do an assessment and we look at the scores on each question. And we see that in one class, say, uh, they've done a lot better on this question than the other classes. Or we might see that on this question, a less advanced group has outperformed a more advanced group. And we say to the teacher, well, what did you do? And they say, well, I don't know what I did. I just, I just did, I just taught the materials. And you say, you give them a board pen and you say, well, talk us through how you do this if it was a worked example. And they start talking you through it. And you find that they've done something that, that isn't in the materials, but is in their head. And they just thought it was obvious and that everyone did it that way. Um, and it's often stuff that you can't predict from like your own ideological standpoint on how teaching should be um, often doesn't predict these things very well. So there's a way of um, uh, dealing with these, these things called re rectangular hyperbolas. Um, and I was using the textbook method, which I thought was great and elegant and marvelous. And my colleague was using polynomial long division and uh, his students were just outperforming mine quite a lot in those questions. And I thought, well, but his method shouldn't work. Like it's, it's fiddly, it's, it's more complicated than what I'm doing, but it works. Clearly it works better than mine, but better than what I was doing and better than what the other teachers were doing who were do, using the same method as me. So we then write that into the curriculum for the next year. And now we're all doing it and that's how I teach it. Now, I didn't theorize my way into that. I didn't my approach to math teaching would have taken me in a different direction. It was the evidence that took us to that bit and put that in the um, curriculum for next time. And that, so that's what we do. And that's very, very small grain, tiny little bits of detail. But you add them all together over time and you gradually improve your curriculum. And you might say, well, isn't that just a trick? Isn't that just a dodge for performing one particular question? Well, we've been at this long enough now uh, that we know that like, that transfers to later performance and our, our students have gradually improved their performance over time in, in maths. So it's, it's not a one-off. And it's those little, little details, the most effective way to teach this um, and looking at that little variation and mining that for information and then trying to push yourself forward. And that's the best professional development we do. And it's nothing to do with explicit teaching or constructivism. Or, I mean, we get committed to an explicit teaching model a long time ago. It's to do with those little very subject specific, well, mm. sub subject, like tiny things. They're not, you know, they're, they're only specific to a particular topic even or particular question type. That's where I think you find the, the most useful stuff. Mm. And you spoke that there was a different method that, that you felt was more, the obvious way to teach it. And then the other method looked, uh, sorry, because I, I know you only said that two seconds ago and <laughs> what the actual terms were, that it seemed fiddlier. But do you think maybe that kind of tied in more with how with how the students see things? That that you worried about, you know, there's the the curse of knowledge that is as teachers we we have a way of seeing things that might look like the quickest way to us or look like the most obvious way to us, but that it's not necessarily how the how the students see things. Well, it could well, it could well be that. It could well be that. I don't know. I, I don't know why this other method's more effective. And the point is, I would never have thought myself into mm. it. Um, mm. I know it's more effective because I've got evidence. Why kids prefer it 
or why it sort of registers with more of them or they can do it with greater accuracy or whatever it is. I don't really know. I just know that it's more effective. And I'd rather know that um, than, than, because that's the most important thing really. Um, and you have to, the principle that you're looking for, I think is this, this disconfirmation. So we talk ourselves into all the time thinking that kids have uh, learned something. And this is the fundamental flaw with things like levels, learning progressions, rubrics. There's a statement on there and we want the kid to meet the statement. So we look and we think, can, can we possibly justify that this kid meets this statement? Yes, we can, there they go. And it's an exercise in confirmation bias. And what, what's rich is disconfirmation. So it's been confronted with the fact that what you've done hasn't worked or hasn't worked as well as what someone else has done. Because you can't then, you can't sort of talk your way out of that. You, you, can't, you can't confirmation bias your way out of that. And I, and I remember when I first started here um, and I, I started teaching year 12 and we had a conference and someone, a very successful year 12 teacher stood up and I think, I think it was from them, or it might have been from Dylan William. I don't know. I adopted a number of practices at that time. Someone said, uh, and it's definitely in William, so, um, but I'm not quite sure the route it got to me. Um, at the start of the lesson, draw a box on your board, and then any uh, questions from the homework that the students have had trouble with, they can write the question in the box. Okay, all right, so I'll start doing this. Uh, and write, draw my box up and I think well they're, they're not going to write anything in that box like from last night's homework because I think question three and then someone else comes in they tick question three and then someone else comes in they tick question three and add question one I'm looking at this, how could they possibly have struggled with question three question mm. three like yeah. we did that yeah. we did that yesterday yeah. like and we did it like thoroughly and anyway, they were all doing it in class well why can't they do question three so I, I then start talking about question three and we go through it and talk about it. And I realise that there's some sort of issue there. Now, if I hadn't asked the question, if I hadn't put the box on the board, if I hadn't got them to write the question down, it wouldn't have, it never have occurred to me that they had trouble with question three. I wouldn't have had that evidence that if that hadn't worked and I wouldn't have done anything about it. And I'd have had this overwhelming urge to assume everything was fine. And in fact, I've been doing that ever since. And every single time when they write a question on the board, I go, what, why? Let's should be able to do that every single time. But I need that because otherwise I'm gonna just fool myself into thinking that they're fine. And you need little mechanisms like that everywhere that sort of prove you wrong and pull you back and mm. because we don't like it. We don't, we don't seek out that sort of evidence. It's not natural at all. So that's why you need the systems that will do it for you. Mm. And you need that early because it was the ultimate in, dis in disconfirmation is when they go into an exam mm. and they can't, or, or if they need it afterwards, even after the exam and that, you know, it's just not there. So you think you want to, you want to catch that much earlier than. Absolutely. You need it at the micro level as well. Like we have these, sorry, go on. Oh, so, you know, way before they'll ever be tested out independent of you. Yeah. So, and you need it, you need it at the micro level. So if you look at, say, so we do NAPLAN, um, numeracy and, oh, what's it? No, National Assessment Programme Literacy and Numeracy. So we didn't do it this year because of COVID, but generally 
every year, years three, five, seven, and nine, these assessments. There's four literacy ones, uh, reading, writing, grammar, and punctuation and spelling, and a numeracy one. And we look at this data and we go, oh, well, that didn't go very well, did it? Uh, what went wrong? We don't know. Like, this is such a high level, top level assessment. By the time we get to look at the results of a NAPLAN assessment, you know, question five, we've no idea what, what happened that caused that. So you need these tiny little micro level things that can identify the problem, as you say, rightly early, but also at a sufficiently small level of detail. Mm -hmm. So you know exactly what it is. And so you can rule other things out. Something like a reading comprehension assessment doesn't really tell you much at all. Because like there's two massive things that go into that. One is decoding ability and one is relevant knowledge of the text. So or if you know someone didn't do very well on a reading comprehension question, you don't even know which of those it is. You don't know whether they've no. got difficulty decoding or difficulty with the, the relevant vocabulary knowledge or wider background knowledge. So you need to determine those things in other sort of screening assessments way back before you, before they get anywhere near a reading comprehension assessment. Mm, at that. And the, the reading comprehension, yeah, it, it's, it's a funny one because there, there's so many variables that can go into whether or not, you know, how they can, how they can do them. And, and as with the Nopland test, like are they kind of high stakes enough for schools? Like would schools practice doing reading comprehensions? I think they, that's they the do, um, they do. Um, and I, usually people do that when they don't know what else to do. Um, and they are high stakes um, for schools. We have something called the My School website. And what you can do is you can go on there and it's, you can't just get a league table out of it. It's not as straightforward as that, but what you can do is you can compare your schools, your school with similar schools. Um, and the definition of similar is fraught. Like we don't think our similar schools are very similar to us, but there you go. Um, so you compare your school to similar schools. And so that puts pressure on schools. And sometimes that translates into pressure on kids. Like as the adults in the room, we should not be like, these are not high stakes assessments for the kids. Like their, their future trajectory does not depend on how they do in an Aplan assessment. And so we should just be saying, you know, just do the best you can and prepare them well so that they can feel confident and learn. So say, you know, we want to learn something from this. So, you know, if we learn that you um, didn't bring a pen or something, that's not what we want to learn. So we want to prepare you well, so you know what you're doing, but um, don't worry about it. But you do get, I, um, schools and possibly some parents putting pressure on the kids um, over these assessments um, because of that. So it it is a, it is a bit of an issue, but it's just more of a reason. It's not a reason to get rid of NAPLAN assessments because um, I think there's a, a moral level to that, a level of accountability, so that parents have got an independent check on how their kid is going, and um, and I think that that's important. But in terms of school improvement, you just need to shift that way upstream. So you're not waiting for the results of a NAPLAN. You've got mm. other screens in place much earlier um, where you can find out exactly what's going on. Uh, you know, we, we're introducing things, we're introducing now sort of the, in a kind of voluntary way, the phonics check, the UK phonics, the mm. English phonics check. Mm. So we've created our own version as an online portal. All the schools in South Australia do it. There's loads of schools that have opted into it in New South Wales. Um, and so gradually that's ex extending. And I think 
um, there's a role for policy there in creating those sorts of screens and not necessarily mm -hmm. making them uh, compulsory and not necessarily reporting the results on a website or anything, but just making them available for schools so that schools can, the kids can sit them, the schools can say, well, our kids are sitting here relative to kids the same age. That shows that mm -hmm. we're doing quite well here. But, oh, actually, other schools seem to be doing better on this than we are. So maybe we need to in, um, think about uh, some professional learning in that area or, or whatever. And I think that that's, um, that, that's probably the, the next level of work. You can't just parachute in a, uh, a standardised assessment regime like NAPLAN and think that that will fix everything. Mm -hmm. And the phonic screening is kind of catching catching problems in an early, early rather than waiting yeah. to fail. Yeah. And you spoke there about pressure and going back to your point earlier about, you know, teachers in the media, I think one thing that I see here happens constantly is that in the run-up to the state exams and, and we have quite high stakes exams at the end, and they didn't happen this year because of COVID, at the end of secondary school and then the results of that then depends on whether or not you go to third level or whether or not you go to third level depends on how you get on in those exams. And there's, when they bring on experts to discuss, you know, how people should prepare for these exams, it's always psychologists and yeah. counsellors on, on how to deal with the stress. And, and there are lots of, um, you know, articles on how to, how to help your child survive yeah. the exams. And I know, kind of, what's your kind of thoughts about that? Do you think we should kind of stick with exams generally or kind of move towards um, different kinds of assessments that would be maybe less, less stressful or are different types of assessments less stressful? Um, look, I'm a big fan of exams um, because I think, although they're not fair, because life isn't fair and some people have advantages over others in an exam you at least have to go into the room and do the work on aided at that point in time any other system i can think of uh, allows um, the possibility of uh, further advantage to the advantage so you know project-based work let, let's produce a portfolio assessment instead of an exam for chemistry we'll do a chemistry project well the kid whose uncles are chemistry professor probably will end up doing a better project some you know even tutors can get involved in helping write things uh, then you say that it's assessed let's not let's look at the whole person not just academics let's look at their um, community service and let's factor that in well the kid who's um you know uh, quite wealthy connections at the local church uh, is going to have much more opportunity to do community service than the kid that's catching two buses to school from a single parent family working at the weekends to try and help out. So whatever system you design that moves away from exams, I think there are severe equity issues with that system. And people don't really think about that. They, they focus on the exams, they focus on everything that they think is wrong with exams, but they don't really apply the same level of analysis to the alternatives, if they even have a, a well thought out alternative in mind. In terms of stress, you're right. We talk this up and we talk and, and actually talking up the stress isn't helpful. Like telling kids, oh, this is really stressful. And, oh, you know, here's a plan to survive your um, year 12 exams. That's not really very helpful because that actually amplifies the, the stress. But life is full of pressures. <clears throat> yeah, when you take a driving test, very similar. 
but then things like, you know, going to an interview, uh, asking someone out, um, you know, or first I had a new job. All these things are pressured situations. The idea that um, young people can't cope with the, the, I mean, some students uh, will have a, a, a severe issue around exams, a particular phobia that's developed. And I've taught students in that position, and I'm sure you have too, but they're not, they're a very small minority of students. The vast majority of students can quite cope perfectly well. And then that, that, that small minority you can make special provision for. Um, but it, the idea that it's the most stressful thing that you could possibly do is to sit in a room for a, an hour and write something. Uh, it, I think we, it's, we've gone a bit, we've lost the plot slightly. We're the adults here. We're the ones that are supposed to be saying, you know, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's normal. It's okay. Uh, you just do the best you can. Not everyone can be top of the state. It doesn't matter. Do what you can. That's what we should be saying. We shouldn't be saying, oh, darling, are you, are you stressed about your exams? Yeah. How are you coping? That, that's just, that's not going to help anyone. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant. The, um, as I think as well, like exams are, and the, the loud measure that comes right at the end. And so many things we focused early on, as you say, it's where all of our confirmation bias comes sometimes crashing into the wall of, reality yeah. sometimes yeah. and and that that's when someone is where the stress comes from where you know everybody can can see at that point you know that that you're coming up to the exams and it's not yeah it's um you're in trouble sometimes well, ab absolutely like if you fooled yourself into thinking uh that these these kids um are going to uh have achieved mastery in some sort of way and and the final exam is the first time you find out that they haven't, which uh, is surprisingly common um, because a lot of schools just don't have those checks. Or they say, um, oh, uh, we'll, we'll uh, spend uh, the whole of year nine doing uh, project-based learning or whatever. And then they only start to get serious uh, with academic content halfway through year 11. And then there isn't enough time to figure out who is where in terms of their learning. And you can't put enough interventions in place. And then, yeah, you crash into this wall right at the end. So you're right. The Ideally, kids are so used to assessment that it's routine for them. We've collected lots of evidence on the way. The final exam is just a confirmation of some fairly accurate predictions we already have. And then it's not really a very stressful situation. But yeah, if, if, if confirmation biases cause you to run into that wall with a few illusions, then maybe it would be. And you write a lot in the book about guilt. That kind of word kind of comes up a lot. And, and one, one topic it comes up in relation to is differentiation. And I know this is something I felt myself and a, a lot of other teachers have felt as well that you know, class sizes are big and ability ranges are, are wide. And do you feel perhaps there's an unfair expectation on teachers that if you could different, if you could get differentiation right, then then you could cater to everybody all at the one time in the same room. Um, yeah. Look, a, a differentiation is probably a good example of the ideological um, concerns of academics crashing into the practical realities of the classroom. 
Um, yes, people are different and students are different, very different and have very different needs in the classroom. And it's not hard to look at a classroom and notice that and say, uh, well, what kind of monster wants to just teach them all the same? Like, what, what's that about? Are you trying to breed them some sort of conformity? You might as well have them marching around next or something. Why, why can't we treat them all as the wonderful uh, individuals that they are? And there's a lot of, you can understand that. And, and it is hard to teach a range of ability in one room. And one way you can mitigate that, of course, is to prevent that range from developing in the first place by having lots of good screens and interventions in place further upstream so you don't have such a wide variation and another way you can do it which uh, academics are usually not in favor of is uh, you know having more advanced classes and less advanced classes and and I, I understand why because that's fraught because if you give the kids in the less advanced class a impoverished curriculum they'll never be able to catch up with the kids in the more advanced they actually need more intensive support they need the best teachers uh, and we often don't organize it that way. So I understand that. But um, if you have a, a, a classroom and you've got this, this range of ability in the classroom, it's very easy to say, well, yeah, okay, let, we, need to, we need to differentiate. We need to give them different things to do. But there's a cost benefit there. If you use, and, and we all differentiate to some extent, like we all do. So I've been critical of differentiation, but I have, I have had a kid in my maths class that has had um, an extra pack of work to work through. Um, because uh, he didn't really need some of the stuff that we were doing towards the end, towards the exam. Um, and, and you get that. Um, we all do that. But how it's often envisaged by uh, people is that we'll group the kids into different groups. Um, maybe we'll have kids of a similar level of advancement together, or maybe we'll share them out. Um, and then we'll give the different groups different tasks to do. Um, and... And, and that's how we'll differentiate. Well, the problem there is that I've talked about that, you know, obviously I believe in how effective whole class interactive explicit teaching is. Well, if you've got say six groups and you've got an hour, then all of a sudden you've reduced the, mac the maximum amount of explicit teaching you can do from one hour with each kid to 10 minutes. Um, so yes, you've, it might be more tailored to the individuals in that group, but they've got vastly less of it. So there's a cost benefit there. Um, now, this doesn't occur to a lot of people because I think a lot of people see education not in terms of teaching um, and learning and interacting, but in terms of tasks completed. So they, they think differentiation is just a case of producing six different levels of task and sharing them out and then monitoring the completion of the... I read a paper on maths education like that the other day where it just seems like these kids are just working through tasks. That's what they do. That's their concept of what a maths class is um, activity-based learning, I think I've called it in the past, rather than teaching. But if, if you want to use a most effective kind of explicit teaching approach, um, this grouping just, do, well, doesn't sit well with that. So there's costs and benefits. And as teachers, we have to be pragmatic because we've got the reality of 25 to 30 kids in the class. And we need to hit that line that is, you know, the best balance between these individualization on the one hand and um, uh, effective um, whole class teaching on the other. Um, and the other thing is, you know, there's really, uh, we, we kind of manufacture some of these differences between kids as well. And they're not that different. Even if you've got large knowledge gaps in the class, if you're teaching something new, you can't really predict how kids are gonna cope with it. And because they're individuals, some kids might get things that you might have predicted that they wouldn't. 
Now, if you predicted they didn't, and then you gave them a task on that basis, you've actually limited them. Whereas mm -hmm. if you teach them the whole entitlement, you might find out they can do things that surprise you. Mm. And how do you think that explicit teaching can help kind of bring kids in who, who might be like at the margins of, of your class, kind of bring them into that you know, whole class progression with a kind of moving forward? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and one of the key things about effective explicit teaching, as opposed to the sort of default explicit teaching I used to do, is you have to involve all the students. So things like um, choosing kids to answer the questions. So anyone can ex be, expect to be um, chosen at any time. So kids can't drift off. Like if the only people answering the questions, the kids who've got their hands up, then a kid knows if they don't put their hand up, they don't have to answer any questions. They don't really have to follow the lesson. We don't. We tend to go more with the whole class response, though, which we can do in maths a lot. With so every, basically everyone has to write something on their mini whiteboard. You can't opt out of that. Um, and those are, are techniques of effective explicit teaching that do pull everyone in and prevent people from uh, you know sort of staring out the window and getting off track and then never really getting back on again. Mm. And the, you say as well that the, you know, we think about motivation coming before learning, but that actually it's the success and thinking of yourself as, oh, this is something I can do. It's worth my time. It's worth me investing my time and effort into this. Yes. So um, I think it's, I think it's two way. I think uh, if you're motivated, you, you will learn more. And I think if you learn more, and you become motivated by that because you become motivated by mastery. However, most people think it's the first line. They only seem to focus on the first uh, direction. So they think we've got to motivate students. And if we motivate them, then they'll learn. But, but if you motivate them, say, by doing a cool science experiment where something explodes, you're probably going to make situational interest. So they get really interested in that situation. It won't necessarily lead to a long-term interest in science. Um, and what we neglect is the fact that actually becoming better at something is very motivating. So um, when you start to get a sense of mastery, um, you, you develop interest as a result of that. And so if we use effective teaching methods. We might end up motivating the kids as a result. There's not necessarily a conflict there. Um, having the research actually is slightly more, in my opinion, is slightly more powerful for the Mass, uh, mastery to motivation route than it is for the motivation to mastery route. Um, I think it goes both ways, but really, if you, an evidence, the evidence seems to suggest that the the one is a little bit strong. So we definitely shouldn't neglect that uh, in our mm. thinking, and certainly just trying to jazz things up all the time, and uh, you know, try hook kids in with something we think they might be interested in. I think kids see through that as well. They just think you're being a bit weird if you try and um co-opt their youth culture and and try and sort of uh, surreptitiously teach them maths through it i think they they just you just end up looking a bit absurd yeah i think they do kind of cop you know what are you selling us yeah yeah, yeah. they and where do you see in if, if you had a crystal ball and you could look into the future and say well where would you see i know teaching do you think like we've reached peak progressivism or do you think that we that we're still going to go further down that road or do you think we will or do you think there would be 
like a split between different schools taking different approaches or like how do you see things I think happening? progressivism peaked in the UK when I was there and it's been on the slide since but it's may well come back um I'm not sure where we are in Australia um uh, people talk about progressivism a lot some progressivist ideas are built into plans for the um curriculum review some are not i i don't know really what the only thing if we look at history what we what it would suggest is that there'll be pendulum swings policymakers will force us to slightly accountability regime based sort of traditionalism approaches and then academics will push back uh, and push us into more kind of ideologically based progressivist approaches and we'll just keep going backwards and forwards but i think um coming um through is is what we're doing now it's teachers talking to other teachers and bypassing all of this and deciding for ourselves what our body of knowledge is what our shared wisdom is and and basically once we start to do that on mass as a profession um the others will become irrelevant mm. And do you see the, the hope for the future, like teachers connecting with other teachers and having conversations across the world, like we're having this conversation now? Absolutely. That's the way forward, definitely. Well, thank you very much, Greg. And that's been a pleasure talking to Greg today. And so Greg's book, can you tell us when is the... It's available to pre-order at the moment, I think, is it? Yeah, so I think it's... Um... I don't know exactly. Uh, I think it's available in the Northern Hemisphere from sort of December and in the Southern Hemisphere from, from January, but, but uh, pre-ordering is available now uh, for those that want to seek it out. Thank you. That's Greg Ashman. So the book is The Power of Explicit Teaching and Direct Instruction. And thank you, Greg. It's been a pleasure interviewing you today. And uh, best of luck with the book and with the podcast as well. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thank you for being such an awesome interviewer. I really appreciate that you've done this. <laughs>